Welcome to Weird Sounds, an audio companion to the Boston Art Book Fair and Boston Center for the Arts. I'm your host, Oliver Mack. And I'm also your host, Randy Hopkins. Oliver and I are the co-founders of the Boston Art Book Fair, which has brought us into contact with an incredible array of artists and creative thinkers. We want to share some of these conversations with you. And that's exactly why we started Weird Sounds, as a podcast to document the ways that people are making art all around us these days. We have so many questions for artists because we love hearing about the ideas and images, inspirations and aspirations behind their practices. And we know you will too. Hi, friends. Weird Sounds is looking forward to the in-person return of the Boston Art Book Fair, taking place this year on November 4th, 5th, and 6th in the Cyclorama at Boston Center for the Arts. That's right, Randy. We're back in person, and it's got to be one of the largest events of its kind in the Northeast, and therefore the known universe. Boston Art Book Fair is free to the public on Saturday and Sunday, and we also have a preview party Friday evening, November 4th. Proceeds from the preview party help support artists from the fair and keep it free to the public. Now check out our conversation with Boston Art Book Fair exhibitor and founder of the Boston Art Review, Jameson Johnson. And when you're done, check out bostonartbookfair.com and get yourself a preview ticket. See you there. Today, Oliver and I sat down with Jameson Johnson, founder and editor-in-chief at Boston Art Review, which has a special place in our hearts and in our history. It was launched at the Boston Art Book Fair, and we love being part of its origin story. In addition to her tireless work for Boston Art Review, Jameson is a writer, editor, independent curator, and is also the marketing associate and MIT's acclaimed List Visual Arts Center. Listen in as we catch up with Jameson as she prepares to launch issue nine. We have Jameson from Boston Art Review joining us for this episode of Weird Sounds. Uh, thanks for joining us, Jameson. Yeah. Hi, Jameson. Uh, hey, I'm happy to be here. This is very fun for me because I actually used to produce a local podcast called The Horse Race, which is a, a political like Boston and Massachusetts politics podcast. And so every week I was like sat with headphones on and checking levels. So it's fun to actually be a guest on a podcast now. That's amazing. Are you a podcast listener to her? Um... I think I used to be more. I think I got really into podcasts during quarantine. I was like, oh, I can hear people talking to me. This is so nice. <laughs> and then I've been like less, less into them lately, but maybe this will get me excited about them again. Yeah. I noticed you stopped quoting Joe Rogan so much lately. <laughs> totally. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> the horse race, was that like, that was only political? It had nothing to do with horses. <laughs> Nothing to do with horses. It was purely political. It was run out of the Mass Polling Group, which is out of Mass Inc., a local political think tank. Um, it was fun. We had some like great local po politicians and guests on, and it was definitely the most engaged with local politics that I have been. And Did you ever talk to Vermin be. Supreme um, from New fun. Hampshire? I have not talked to him on the podcast, but I met him at a magazine launch event in New York in 2017, and I have a photo of me with him. Was he still with the time travel party at that time? Yes. Yeah. That was like right before or it was right after Trump had been elected. 
And he was still pretty actively uh, wearing a boot on his head and <laughs> talking to people. <laughs> it was really funny because I knew exactly who he was. And I was with a group of friends and I was like, oh, my God, that's Vermin Supreme. I need to go like take a photo with him. And like all of the friends that I were with were like, what? <laughs> like, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, if, unless you grew up in this area or are running a podcast about horses and politics, <laughs> you probably wouldn't know totally. about them. Because you're, you're, you're not from, are you from the East Coast? I forget. No, West Coast. I grew up in an hour south of LA. And actually the, the Boston Art Review domain name was purchased while I was living in Los Angeles. Yeah. By you, by you not a uh, squatter. By me. I... Yeah. Correct. I I had um. Well, should I tell the story of how I got bar started? Yeah. Nah. No, no, no. Oh yeah. Sure. 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 Yeah. Sure. <laughs> okay. I was gonna say no. Um, no. Well. Okay. The story is I was pretty young when I started Boston Art Review. I was a student at Northeastern. I had come here to go to school, and the first person in my entire family to go to college didn't really grow up around contemporary art but got to school and was taking some art history classes was excited about writing wanted to write about the local art happening in the area and at the time a lot of the publications that had really been kind of strongholds from the late 90s era of like dailies and local scene reporting were just kind of shuddering, specifically Boston Phoenix, other local blogs that came about in the early to mid 2000s, like Big Red and Shiny, were also kind of shutting down. And and the unifying thread between a lot of these local arts outlets was bandwidth and people just tapping out, not having the funding and not having the resources or the energy to keep these projects that largely became passion projects going. So rather than seeing the writing on the wall, I thought I'm going to make a passion project to fill the space of these, these periodicals and publications and blogs that are closing their doors. At the time I was living in LA, I was working for an organization out there called For Your Art. They run a really great weekly newsletter for art happenings in the Los Angeles area. Um, and I was like, why doesn't Boston have this? Like, why can't I figure out what art events are happening in the city? There's no curated, solid spot that someone can go to to find out what's happening on, on a weekly basis. So I bought the domain name Boston Art Review. I had absolutely no idea what to do with it. This was 2015. So I hung on to it for about a year and a half. And during that time, went around and told people like, hey, I have this idea for an art magazine or a Public, an online publication at the very least, what do you think Boston needs for an art outlet here? And I I did this by going to like every possible gallery opening that I could or artist talk or DIY scene. I mean, I was just out there. I mean, people probably thought I was like a weirdo. They were like, who is this girl that's out here like asking us what the Boston art scene needs? And then the first Boston Art Book Fair was rolling around in 2017. And I kind of was like, I feel like this is the now or never moment. I think there's going to be a bunch of people who like Boston and like art and like magazines and care about print and discourse all under one roof. I went to a couple of my friends who knew how to design websites and work on some branding and they built me a website in like four days. I was printing business cards like 30 minutes before the start to the Boston Art Book Fair. And I went around at every single table at the Boston Art Book Fair that year and said like, hey, this is what I'm trying to do. 
I have no idea what I'm doing. Do you want to be a part of it? And it was actually there that I met some of the editors and designers, supporters and mentors that have been a part of the bar story ever since. So even from the very beginning, I I wanted Boston Art Review to be something that could break down silos and bridge some gaps between coverage and criticism and be an outlet that was driven by community voices and not kind of a a top-down hierarchical pedagogical publication that relied on kind of pedigree of your arts writing or criticism chops. So yeah, the first, this it's like full circle to now be so involved with the Art Book Fair um, and to be such a fan because that was where we got the humble beginnings. I love that story, but (laughs) it also feels full circle to me because I have to say I was involved in the Phoenix and in Big Red and Shiny as like Mm -hmm. art vehicles here and watched like all the bumps in the road and all the like, uh, like, birth pains of going from print to internet and trying to figure out what internet would mean for the arts. And um, what it's just super interesting that you, you bopped along right as those guys just ran out of steam, not necessarily having figured it out. And I think the landscape's yeah. changed a lot since then. We are so glad to have you. Yeah. I was also given a flashback to, I think I, I was one of the people that you asked about, what do you think of this idea? And I said, this yeah. is, uh, I told you I wouldn't do it because it's totally insane. And um, I'm glad that you're, you did it because you passed my test. That was actually a test where I threw at you the no and you still did it anyways. So that meant you had what it takes to do it. That's right. We did. We did talk super early on. And yeah, and other people told me no, too. I mean, other people looked at me like I was crazy. People still do. I mean, we're still a primarily volunteer-run operation. I, I can't think of another art journal periodical of our kind of caliber of work that operates without at least one paid full-time staff person. So it, we're, still, we're still drinking the crazy juice, for sure. <laughs> but it's working. Yeah. It's working. It's working. If the young Jameson came up to you now and said, I have this idea, would would you be the person to say, don't do it, you're crazy? I wouldn't change anything. I, I mean, as far as doing it, I would have maybe tried to explore models for fundraising earlier on. I, I think that this is absolutely the kind of project that, you know, while we do have a proof of concept now, I think earlier on, I, I could have tried to have gotten some funding. I mean, I was using my work study money from the library at Northeastern to pay for some of the early costs associated with this. And I just didn't come from a, a background or wasn't connected to anyone from the kind of startup world or the business side of things. So I was really relying on like community support networks to get this going. And I think going back, like getting some, some savviness around business development and management is definitely an area I would have liked to have been better at. <laughs> well, it's a, it's a common theme throughout all self-publishing. It's, it's even at, we were just talking with Kathleen Silvota from Drawdown Books, and they have mm-hmm. one of the biggest followings uh, out of the people in the scene, and they still self-fund a lot of the publish, publishing side of their work. Yeah, it's it's such an interesting kind of conundrum because the arts and kind of the collector side of the art world, there's so much money, and collectors and scholars and patrons and practitioners 
really rely on and enjoy artists produce materials and really rely on press. You know, press is a crucial part to determining an artist's like worth and value of their work on a very just like market level. And in the community, it's crucial to fostering a robust dialogue and and making artists feel like they matter in the city that they live in. So I'm always totally perplexed when people who are such avid like art fans don't get the publishing, the art publishing side of side of this industry. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that makes so much sense. That's so interesting. Well, everyone knows that that it's it's important, but I think the hard part to wrap around is is how do you, it still has to be a business core of it, and mm-hmm. they, no one can figure out how to turn that into something that makes sense as a business. Yeah, I think that's the hardest part, personally. Yeah. Totally. But I think you guys have a really good model because uh, you've done things like thrown possibly the best party in <laughs> yep. the city and have that as a fundraising model, which is, I think, absolutely brilliant. Yeah, parties are really important to our ethos. Um, I've said that from the from the get go. I think Boston needs more parties every, you know, when you read about like the downtown 1970s art scene in New York where things were happening were at parties and like late nights in people's loft apartments. Like they weren't at a museum opening where people are drinking champagne. People need an opportunity to, to let loose and collaborate with one another and and have a good time. So we've tried to really provide that in like a safe and fun and cool way. Boston loves to crack down on parties. They love to make it really difficult. Just this last week, I was, was talking to someone yesterday, boiler room, a cool house party collective was throwing a party in Boston. And two days before the event was supposed to happen, permitting and BPD shut down their location. It was supposed to be held under I-93 at the ink block location. And they just shut it down and they had to move to like a venue that has like bottle service and was just like totally anti to the ethos of that kind of party. And, you know, if these big, big event organizers are struggling to make things happen in Boston, then like, what can the little guys do? I I experienced this with the party we had for our issue eight release. I just spent three days going back and forth to building and inspectional services and permitting and BPD to get it signed off to have a party basically in a parking lot and a warehouse. It's just, it's, it's totally ridiculous. And I'm, as you've heard from Oliver, before, I don't take no for an answer. So if someone like me has a hard time figuring it out, I can't even imagine what other people who may not have the same access or resources or tenacity that I do to make things happen in this city. So parties are important. We try to make them happen when we can. And they're they're a lot of fun. We partner with really cool DJ collectives. We get cool drink sponsors and really just try to let people know that Boston's a cool place. Yeah, I didn't know about the boiler room getting shut down and moved to another venue. I think they're doing a um there's another uh event at that same lo- original location uh at Inkblock with common headlining soon. I wonder if that's going to keep going. But um Huh, yeah. He- yeah, I totally remember what you're talking about because I was doing a lot of that type of promotion when I was running our gallery underneath uh, the Boston Phoenix uh, offices. Mm-hmm. And what I usually did was not get any permits and tried to hide from the police. And then I got yeah. busted <laughs> and that didn't go too well. Uh, we we tried that approach for a little while, but Boston Art Review became a nonprofit this year. So I have to go by the books. <laughs> 
As do I nowadays. But it's, yeah, it's incredible the amount of bureaucracy that has to go down to just do anything in the city. So that's I think that's the yeah. other element that you're up against as uh, anybody trying to do anything interesting. Yeah. Yep. Totally. For sure. That is so much a part of my day to day life. I can't even respond here. I mean, it, but <laughs> and I've also lived in a lot of different cities and never seen anything like it. It is really it really ties people up in knots for the creative world. Well, it's because I think we were founded with uh, puritanical ancestors who uh, who possibly believed playing cards was the devil's work or something like that. <laughs> Exactly. And also because the, the liquor lobby is really strong here. You know, the, the whole thing is like what what forces you into, uh, you know, normal venues and such. Yeah. Maybe you just got to do it at the casino. Who knows? They get to do, they get right? to do whatever they want. Get to the encore. Yeah. <laughs> My God. That sounds the, the, the bar, all you can eat buffet, <laughs> uh, techno rave. I actually went to the encore for the first time a couple weeks ago with some friends because I thought it was such a silly place. Um, and I'd always kind of joked about it, like, let's let's go to the encore. And I went there and had a pretty bad time. So <laughs> I didn't know how expensive casinos are. <laughs> Maybe that's very naive of me, but like I was like, I want to play poker. You can't play poker at a casino. It costs so much money. <laughs> oh, no, 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 no. So lesson learned. Yeah, that place is I still haven't been there, but uh, I get to go to Vegas for work a lot. And it's just um it's a fascinating ecosystem. You can say that again. Wow. But Randy, anyways, what it, what, what was your experiences like throwing uh because you ran your own gallery as well and you I'm sure you hosted a lot of parties. Yeah, I mean, but uh, we were also babies and didn't know anything about permitting and just like went naively about our business in the Boston days. But I mean, I was years in New York. I I just some of the things the places I can't even remember that we end up without having to jump through a million hoops, right? It just was part of the scene. Everybody ended up gathered together, whether it was like meat packing district before that was whatever it is now or off on the beaches along the pier there or anything. Just, I don't know, a lot more room to move and be kind of under the radar. That was generative. I mean, that was really good stuff. Anyways, but I'm I'm also thinking of something else for you, Miss Jameson, that you're building kind of a crew of writers here, I think, in a really interesting mm -hmm. way. And that's something I was thinking about as you're talking, because that also is something that's in shorter and shorter supply, I think, everywhere. At the same time as like galleries probably have a hard time kind of valuing what they should be paying like writers and what mm -hmm. they should be paying publications, how important that is for them. Um, I also think it, it means we don't develop as many writers as you, as you would hope. And I'm kind of curious because I know you've gone out of your way to bring, I think people who are kind of new to the art world to be part of your team of like covering things in Boston. Does that sound accurate? Yeah, absolutely. You know, we, I, I really believe that there needs to be a dramatic shift in arts writing across the field. I think it's slowly happening. We're, we're starting to hear from more and more voices, the kind of stereotypical, like 
stodgy old white man who like sneaks into galleries and review things silently and you know goes home and types away is is not what the criticism and discourse world looks like right now so we are really interested in fostering relationships with writers who yeah maybe don't have have bylines at major publications but are a vested and trusted voice here in the Boston art scene. Our editors are have a lot of experience and are willing to put in the work to work with an emerging writer um, to get their piece kind of up to the, the kind of standards that we have for the publication. Um, but most importantly, we're really committed to uplifting the diverse perspectives that are representative of our entire city. We don't just want the artists that we cover to be representative of every neighborhood and age and group of people in the city, but we want the writers to to also reflect that work. And we think that it also benefits the artist who's having their work written about if the person that they can be in dialogue with, or if the person who's writing about their work can be more of an uh, echolocutor and a, a, a collaborator rather than somebody who's coming in with kind of a distanced voice. So it's, it's, it's a, you know, it's not the norm for the criticism field, but like I said, we really try to kind of bridge the gap between coverage and criticism. So neither one or the other, we try to also kind of eschew an academic voice and really make sure that our content is approachable while also not talking down to anyone or not talking over anyone. So striking that balance is, is hard. It's also hard to have limited resources. Freelance writers rely on the, what they get paid for their pieces. And we're slowly working to try to meet a kind of uh, wage certification, which is working artists in the greater economy. It's hard because we don't, like I said, we're not even paying anyone to be on staff at the publication. So right now we are, we're really investing in the writers and photographers and commissioned artists who we work with. Um, and that feels really important. And we're, we're hoping that we can fundraise more so we can pay people more. <laughs> Because that'll help people keep people here too. You know, if people can go and get gigs, bigger gigs in other cities, then they'll do it. So we need to really be able to to invest in the voices that are here. I think that's the biggest thing that resonates with me because I, you know, I, I hit that wall as well with trying to figure out, well, there's no creative economy here. There's no industry for anything that I'm interested in. But how do I make it so that I could sustain myself and maybe keep some other people who are making great work in Boston? Yeah, I um I learned this from one of my mentors and professors in college, Gloria Sutton. She imparted the idea of uploading the same amount that you download onto me. It and it really stuck with me. And I think that you can apply that to a lot of different areas of life. And I think specifically for for students and young people in Boston, I I talk to college classes all the time, and I tell kids like, "Hey, you're here. You're learning here." you're part of the ecosystem. And as much as you are taking from this place, you need to give back. So get out there, make something, write for a blog, write for bar, like take and give. It is a balance. And so many people that come through city, I think really view it as this place where they can kind of like come and do their thing and then like leave and go on to like whatever something better is. And so I'm, I'm really interested in, in trying to find a way to tell people like, no, this is, this is it. You can make the city what you want it to be. Chasing after some other place isn't going to make this place any better. I love it. I think I keep sounding so earnest and you guys are going to talk about parties, but I think that is just really true. And I think we are 
I think part of the podcast, part of the book fair is like talking to people who've like really tried to make something here, make something new mm -hmm. or make something in the face of a lot of no or a lot of uphill climb. Randy, do you have to talk to a lot of uh, college classes as well these days? <laughs> I haven't been inside one in a long time. Huh. That's an interesting question. You know, I taught art history at Simmons for like a bunch of years. It was some of my most favorite and most difficult like undertakings I ever did because I'm not trained as an art historian. So I had to like re like learn everything that I'd learned just sort of through my eyes. I had to learn it to think about how to impart it, how to tell a story that was interesting, how to connect with young people. And it, that is it. It, I don't think I was great at it. My students would probably have to agree with that. But I adored that process, and I really adored what they brought to it and what I learned from it. And I I think it was. I hope it was mutually beneficial. But um, So I, I love working with people who are trying to figure themselves out and are trying to figure out what their skill set is and what direction might be a good one for them and what's, pos like what's possible and you know what obstacles. Are they just throwing up for themselves and what's real? And I don't know. I, I enjoy that in every situation. So I think whether it's colleagues or when I was teaching or when we ran the gallery, I mean, I think I've always had a predisposition to working with people who are just at a place where they're starting to figure something out. Cause I think that's like the most fun challenge for me also, you know, not to necessarily tell somebody how I think they should do it, but to try to get a sense of like, what's the voice that they're trying to get out? Like, like who, who could they best be? So teaching was really good practice and experience for that. Like I say, I've, I think I was a pretty funny teacher, but I don't know. But I did that for a bunch of years and it was, especially during that era, I think it was between like 2011 and then like up and, and for about almost a decade, I, but so many changes. Then you feel like you're on the front row of like stuff as technology is changing and it's different kind of art platform and vocabulary is changing. And I mean, you're really looking at it incredibly carefully because you're thinking about how you can share it and be a little bit of a conduit of it. Mm -hmm. People you're working with. I don't know, Oliver, have you ever taught? No, not at all. I, I'm totally worthless in that sense. But I, I was thinking <laughs> about not? like what, what I was thinking about what Jameson just said. Of, she, Jameson has a lot of opportunity to connect with those those spaces. And I'm, I was wondering if it came through. Well, I, I guess, Jameson, where does that where do those opportunities come from? For students? Uh, well, where where are you? Where in the process are you brought oh. into classrooms to talk? Is it through Boston Art um, Review or the I, work you do outside? Yeah, of that? through through colleagues that know, know me and, you know, sometimes I'll go to classes and I'll do crits or, um, yeah, speak to students about their work or I'll talk to them about press or running an art magazine. I think there's a lot of like, people can feel like there's a lot of like mystery to like, how does the press work? And I really like working with young artists, especially to teach them like how to have their work ready to go for press. The amount of times that I have like worked with artists and they're not ready for a press request. It's, it can be frustrating. And so I, I, when I can, I really like to resource share and, and tell people like, Hey, you know, we're a cool, small local publication that cares about you and cares about the community. But if a bigger publication comes knocking and you don't have your chops together, you know, you might not get featured in that issue. So I, it's just an opportunity for us to tell 
to teach people like, Hey, here's, here's how this world works. It moves fast and doesn't really wait. And here's how you can make yourself be ready. I mean, that's so valuable. I have a question for you guys. Oh yeah. Um, which is speaking of resource and kind of skill sharing, when you guys had the idea to set up the Boston art book fair, were you learning from models from other art book fairs around the the U S or were you really creating models that worked specifically for our Boston community? We probably have like completely different answers. I don't even know. I know. What do you think? I do not have a model at all. And I just went in like young Jameson and said, (laughs) I'm going to do this and I don't care what you think. I'm just going to make it happen and we'll see what happens because it's an experiment. Mm -hmm. And that's usually the way I get things done, but also the way I cause great stress and pain for myself. (laughs) But that's the only way I know how to do things, unfortunately. And I'm so stubborn that I refuse to do it any other way or learn from my past mistakes of doing it that way. I always learn from the mistakes that I make, but I don't ever change that approach because I like adventure. (laughs) Mm -hmm. That makes sense. That makes sense. I think we were accidentally a very good uh, pair for this because, and I've been obsessed with the New York art book fair because I love text and I love books. I love writing and I love art. Just go to the New York art book fair all the time. But Oliver came to me, I don't even know why, and said, we should do an art book fair in Boston. And I just looked at the New York art book fair and looked at us and thought and said, that's pretty much impossible. Like I would love Mm -hmm. it. And, but that's impossible. And he was just like, no, it's not. So then, so then it started and we just did it. I mean, I think Oliver was really good at encouraging me to just realize you can just do it the way you're going to do it. It could be at your scale and with your strengths. And especially that first mm-hmm. year was so much fun and so scrappy. I mean, and it's grown super cool. But that's yeah, that's me. But I also, to just maybe not quite answering your question, but we have really evolved. And I think, you know, we mm-hmm. just getting it done the first time was unbelievable. Like that she would even get it done. But then I think the really the deep thinking goes in, like, what are the values of the fair? Like, what should or shouldn't Mm -hmm. be here? What kind of and as the world's been changing, like, how does that get reflected in the fair? Getting much more sensitive to how many different kind of ways there are to do this uh, and like really looking at different kind of models that are more suited for maybe our like values i'm gonna keep saying that things that so so it's definitely changing it changes all the time but i think too like the initial you just have to be like dumb enough (laughs) to do like to just keep to do it but dumb and experienced because it was um you know we did that very naively but with a lot of experience in our backgrounds Mm. Yes. So Randy and I had both run multiple businesses. I had been throwing events, whether in bands or something else, since I was like 16. So I had a good background in like the business model aspect. And I did have a lot of contacts within getting the sponsorship part of covering Mm -hmm. your costs done. And uh, one of the big assets that Randy... And the Boston Center for the Arts has is space. So your yeah. big, your biggest, your biggest problem is space. And at that point, and if they solve that part of the equation, all we need to do is just set the table, let everyone eat. 
Totally. Well, I mean, it's been, like I said, it was where Boston Art Review got its start. It's been so amazing to watch it develop over the past couple of years. Um, I was so sad we couldn't have it last year, but I think it's, you know, it's, it's a really important space, especially because of the um, room that you guys have made for publishers and community groups and big outlets and small outfits, outlets and everywhere in between to have a seat at that table. I mean, stepping into the Boston Art Book Fair, it's like you get this glimpse of, of what Boston's art scene is. And then I think also bringing in some of these bigger publishers and, and groups. I remember one year I was with a group, an international group. Oh my gosh, where were they from? Somewhere in the Middle East. And they were like, so cool. We became like total pals. And it's just this opportunity to be in the same room and connect with one of with one another is really, really special. It's the same ethos as the party. It's like, you got to get people together to, to have fun. And that's where, that's where things happen. That's, I, 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 we really agree. And I think Oliver, your point is really well taken. I always still feel like, wow, how'd we do that? But it is true. We like, we both came to it with way more preparation than you even realized because you have to, I think probably like you, Jameson, you have to be able to wear a lot of different hats to make to like make mm-hmm. a complicated thing happen. So it's not a simple skill set. And so sometimes all of us have like a really varied bunch of skills. It's probably where like kind of the same conversations you had with finding your first editors, your, you know, your first mm-hmm. team. It's like, who should I talk to? And everyone converges into this one answer usually mm-hmm. and yeah. f- for me it was randy randy oh. is the person that mm-hmm. you should partner with to to make the boston art book fair happen wow. say levy and then the rest is ha- <laughs> yeah. rest is uh, history from there you know so yeah. what are the what are the dreams for the boston art book fair moving forward i mean is this do you guys see this as something that is always going to be a collaboration between bodega and boston center for the arts are there other kind of stakeholders that you want to get into the planning mix in the way that you two have? I think they got to clone uh, Randy and myself and <laughs> create an army of uh, producers to create this event so that Randy and I could take a vacation at some point. <laughs> so, I, I don't know. I'm, al- I'm always open to see who walks through the door. It's like, it's like a jambalaya, you know, everyone <laughs> who, who wants to throw in an, a different ingredient to make it interesting. I think that's the great part about this venture where it just gets to be in between our normal work. And it's, Mm -hmm. it's about community and it's about, uh, you know, a lot of the values that you, you and Boston art review reflect. It's just like, how do we get everyone together? How do we have a comprehensive way of representing the scene? And if anybody fits into that and can show up to the meetings and do some work, they're, they're welcome, you know? Yeah. Well, Oliver, we should chat um, when we're not being recorded on a podcast because Randy and I have been talking about a way to maybe get a party plan going or an after party plan that could double up with the Boston Art Review issue nine and Collective Futures Fund launch. And I am I'm at a point right now where I'm like, I'm not planning another party because I cannot deal with the permitting and space issue. So we should chat, make something happen. We'll we'll talk. Well, I say stay out of the permitting stuff. I say go yeah. go partner with a venue, partner with a spot. Yeah, that but venue. You. I I don't have any mo- I don't have any money. I can't pay a six thousand dollar fee that these venues want to charge us. And we've gotten lucky in the past when we've gotten donated space, but that's the only way we can we can throw the events that we do. I mean, we're just never going to be able to pay that kind of fee. Well, t- I totally agree. Yeah, that's the when they say it's uh, that much, that means a no. 
And so, when yeah. they when they say, "Yeah, we'd love to we'll donate the space," and let's, uh, when do you want to start? That's a yes. But those those yeses are hard to find. Yeah, and we've gotten great donated space in the past, but um, yeah, they're hard they're hard to find. This feels like a non sequitur, and I have a million questions for you, but you've got me thinking about our own thing too. But I wouldn't be like this is so cool to be bringing the Boston Art Book Fair back. We only were three mm -hmm. years old when we had to go on pause. So I think we're still toddling a little bit, but mm -hmm. number four is going to be awesome and couldn't put this back on track. But I have a feeling that the, that the future of this may have some twists and turns that people don't expect. I think playing around, I have some ideas about playing around with this that might um, also make it be a way that engages more people over more time and different kinds of mm. so. We, but we'll see how that we got to get back really up and running. You're not going to you're not going to share those ideas <laughs> right now. Know. You don't want to spill some beans. It'll be a reward for whoever listens to us talk for 40 <laughs> minutes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. All right. Yeah, as usual, they, my eyes just aren't that well formed. But I do think like some like a little bit more frequent, smaller fairs has some like kind of cool options and ideas to it. So to be continued, we can talk. We'll talk. Yeah, I agree with that. I think that's really good. I th I didn't New York Art yeah. Book Fair they did something like just they like, took over a street in the summer in the in like yeah. the Lower East Side and it was just like uh, one afternoon and all of a sudden it's done and yeah. everyone got together. Mm -hmm. yeah. like, that type of stuff would be rad. I think it's great. It's it's way less expensive and it allows us to bring the artists in without so much expense, which we really try to like keep to a minimum. And uh, there's lots of good things about it. So you should do that that South End block party. <laughs> there was like one thing I had to DJ with um, at Banyan and like the mayor showed up and it was just like a block party for something on your on your like corner. Tell me when. I mean, talk about permitting. We've talked about doing a BCA block party for years and the what is involved in that is so daunting. You just I'm sure both of you could imagine, but oh, it's, yeah. it's yeah. crazy. Anyways, but Jameson, I was going to throw that around to you too. Uh, do you, does Boston Art Review? Do you find that you shift in your goals for the for the publication? That's something I find it really interesting. How you realize you have a powerful tool, and then you start thinking about how you really want to best use it. I I mean, it's the job of our editorial team, and it's my job to keep our ear to the ground and be responsive to what our community wants. That can be exhausting, especially without having a ton of infrastructure or staff to support things that we're hearing from our community. You know, this has taken shape in different ways. When COVID hit, we started compiling a resource list for artist funding opportunities. That was outside of our like weekly happenings newsletter that we put out. You know, in the wake of, of a lot of discussions around racism and in institutions around Boston and across the U.S. and in, in the wake of the murders of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, you know, we adjusted to offer different resources for, for learning and engaging with anti-racism here in Boston. So things that are outside of like what we do as an arts publication, but are incredibly tied to our community and what they're thinking and talking about the types of content that we shift that we publish shift over time uh coming up this fall we're doing a special issue with the collective futures fund which is a, a cohort of artists who have received a grant through the regional regranting program 
at Tufts University Art Galleries with funding from the Andy Warhol Foundation. We've never done a special issue on a single like group of people or the um, particular, you know, award, but that will be we saw that as something like, wow, this is a really cool funding opportunity. This is like a radical approach to grant making. So let's make something on it. So yeah, we try to be, I, I always say that we try to be really adaptable, um, that we try to um, be responsive and and most importantly, just listening. And I think listening and accountability to your community are like the most important things when you're doing anything that's public facing or serving a large amount of people. Yeah, you're here. Andy, do we listen to people at all? I feel like we don't <laughs> listen to anybody. Oh my God. <laughs> well, you haven't left your house for going on two years. So. Oh yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm a sh- I'm like a wild shut in with 90 cats now. I didn't know that about you, Oliver. <laughs> no, I'm just, a st- I'm just working from home a lot with a yeah. that little baby. Anyways, I think we listen. I'm out there and, and I'm not even that out there, but I'm out there. Randy listens for both of us. <laughs> there you go. That's probably right. Uh, all right. Well, this is so fun to talk to you. Yeah. Are there any remaining questions? I feel like we covered a lot of ground. I don't know who wants to listen to us talk for 45 minutes, but if if you're still here and listening, yeah, thanks. <laughs> you know something? It's important to have y- your voice. I don't know. I've watched also a lot of art worlds come and go in Boston and every like every single person who contributes makes like such a huge difference. So I think just like the value of of getting a chance to talk to people, getting these recorded. I know I don't know who's listening either. Whatever. Sorry if you're uh, not interested, but it's really important. You, I mean, you make this place what it is right now. So we want to have yeah. your voice on in our uh, conversations. Where do you recommend us going once we leave our uh, shut-in lives uh, surrounded by piles of uh, cat food and uh, baby clothes? Where are you looking to go, Oliver? Um, well, if I was a, a newbie, uh, uh, uh-huh. a fresh summer flower uh, ready to be plucked, uh-huh. uh, where would I go to check out the art scene? Good question. So places I'm excited about right now. I really love the work that Ingru Chen is doing at Prey Shadows Gallery in Brookline. Um, I mean, talk about like seeing a need and being told no and making it happen. She's creating this kind of bustling art space in Brookline with a really ambitious exhibition schedule. I think they're installing shows every like six to eight weeks with really incredible artists. So I'm really grateful for the work that Ing is doing. Wait, don't lose your train of thought, but they are first time participators in the Boston Art Book Fair this this fall. Oh, great. Yep. So, good, 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 good. All right. Glad to shout out another group. Let's see. I, where do I, where do I like go and hang out? Well, I guess I'll shout out my, my day job, which is that I work at the List Visual Arts Center at MIT, which is kind of this, we always joke that it's like a hidden gem in Boston, um, that the List Center is better known in Basel, Switzerland than it is in Cambridge. It's, it's really a, we, we call it like MIT's art lab. Like we're there putting on these these crazy exhibitions. We have a show coming up this fall called Symbionts, Contemporary Artists in the Biosphere. And we're going to have spiders crawling in the gallery by Pierre Ouige. We're going to have human waste. We're going to have algae. We're going to have mushrooms by Candace Lynn growing. So I'm really excited about that show. So those are two art spaces um, that are important to me. And then I guess my like 
hangout spots trying to think. I mean, Oliver, you know, my, my friend Shane DJs at state park the first Thursdays of every month. That's always fun. Where else do I go? I don't know. I I'm such a nerd. I go to like artist lectures and (laughs) talks and I, I, that's where I'm like excited to see people. I I think like most of the Boston art scene gathers around opening receptions and like bad glasses of Pinot Grigio and lukewarm cheese. So that's where I'm at. If you're lucky on the cheese thing. (laughs) Yeah. I love that. Uh, yeah, I would, uh, I'm going to follow that to a T actually and go to all those spots. Okay. Nice. So one other, did you take, we ask everyone to tell us something they learned recently. Hmm. Something that I've learned recently. That's a really great, great question. Um, I, I recently relearned how to sail a very tiny boat. Um, so that's been pretty fun. I recently learned about this, uh, like Siberian punk artist named Yanka who put out like one EP in the 80s, 70s or even earlier. Um, anyway, so I've been listening to a lot of her music and I also have been really into riding my bike this summer. And I've also been really into having fun for the first time ever would recommend. It's crazy. You can just, you can just have fun and it's okay. I thought that it wasn't okay to have fun and that I needed to work all the time, but I learned that you can have fun. So that's a really important thing that I learned. Wow. You might want to give a class in that. I would be the first person to sign up. (laughs) I'm not a pro. I'm not a pro, but I am learning and I'm open to the idea and I have dabbled in having fun (laughs) and it's been great. (laughs) Well, I think you found the formula, the bike plus the art is that that's it for me. For me, that was what equals fun in the city and just madcap adventure at any moment without having to find parking. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And don't let your, another important thing I learned with the bike is um, don't let your tire pressure get too low. I got two flats in one instance going across a bad curb on Mass Ave. Um, That sucked. Lesson learned. (laughs) Well, Jameson, thank you so much for joining us and uh, letting us into your world. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. This is fun. You guys are making me feel cool. So thank you. You are cool. What a pleasure to have you. 